Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama, presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. This week's podcast, Filk. More about the music community within science fiction and fantasy fandom. Plus, part two of our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. Glad you're here with us. I'm contributing editor Gray Reinhardt, once again sitting in for Bain editor Tony Daniel. In this podcast, we feature another roundtable discussion with several science fiction and fantasy musicians in the Filk community. Perry Bruns, Blind Lemming Chiffon, Sally and Barry Childs Helton, Lizzie Crow and Eric Coleman, and Tom Smith. And we also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky, as read by Tristan Morris. But first... This podcast is being recorded the week of June fifteenth, 2015, for release on the 19th. This was an important week in space history, with several firsts being recorded. This week in 1962, the European Space Research Organization was established in Paris and would later become the European Space Agency. In more recent news, you may have heard that the ESA's Philae comet lander, which was presumed lost last November when it bounced into heavily shadowed terrain on comet 67P Churyumov-Gerasimenko, finally got enough sunlight on its solar panels to wake up from hibernation and transmit data to the Rosetta Orbiter for relay to Earth. So congratulations to the ESA, and we hope Philae can send back a lot more data about conditions on the comet. Back to space history. This week in 1963, the Soviet Union launched Vostok 6, in which cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova became the first woman in space. And it only took 20 years for the U.S. to catch up. This week, in 1983, 
Astronaut Sally Ride became the first U.S. woman in space when she launched aboard the space shuttle Challenger on mission STS-7. Your humble host was interested to find that one of the payload specialists on that mission was John Fabian. I served with his nephew, Rob Fabian, in the Air Force, and we were both on the air staff together. And I was also interested to learn that John Fabian flew into space again almost exactly two years after STS-7. This week in 1985, on mission STS-51G, aboard the space shuttle Discovery. That mission also involved a space first, when payload specialist Sultan bin Salman bin Abdulaziz Al Saud became the first Arab and first Muslim in space. Our last space first, which is an odd phrase, but it works, happened this week in 2012, when China launched Shenzhou 9, carrying three Taikonauts, including their first female Taikonaut, Liao Yong. So each of the major spacefaring nations sent their first female explorers into space during the same week of the year, but at 20 and then 29-year intervals. This was also an interesting week in genre history. This week in 1896, William Fitzgerald Jenkins was born in Norfolk, Virginia. If that name doesn't mean anything to you, it may be because he made his mark in science fiction and other genres, writing under the name Murray Leinster. He wrote and published more than 1,500 short stories and articles, 14 movie scripts, and hundreds of radio scripts and television plays. His work appeared in Weird Tales, Argosy, Amazing Stories, Astounding Stories, Analog, Galaxy, and the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Leinster's 1934 Sidewise in Time was one of the first parallel universe stories, and the title was the inspiration for the Sidewise Award for Alternate History, which was established in 1995. His 1945 novella, First Contact, included one of the first instances of a universal translator, and his 1946 short story, A Logic Named Joe, expanded the idea of computers to include a network like the Internet. Leinster won the 1956 Hugo Award for Best Novelette for Exploration Team, and in 1996, his first contact was awarded a retro Hugo. Bain published three Leinster collections edited by Eric Flint and Guy Gordon, Med Ship in 2002, Planets of Adventure in 2003, and A Logic Named Joe in 2005. And in one of those odd coincidences that can make history so interesting, a two-time winner of the Sidewise Award for Alternate History was born this week in 1949 in Los Angeles. Harry Turtledove, widely known as a master of alternate history. Turtledove earned a Ph.D. in Byzantine history from UCLA and published widely under pseudonyms before he began writing under his own name. He won the Homer Award for Short Story in 1990 for Designated Hitter, the John Eston Cook Award for Southern Fiction in 1993 for The Guns of the South, the 1994 Hugo Award for Best Novella, 
for Down in the Bottomlands, and his young adult novel The Gladiator was co-winner of the 2008 Prometheus Award. He won his first Sidewise Award for Alternate History in 1998 for his novel How Few Remain, and won another Sidewise Award in 2003 for his novel Ruled Britannia. Bain has published a number of Turtle Dove titles, and most recently he had a story in the 2011 anthology Exiled, Clan of the Claw. Finally, while we're on the topic of Bain books and alternate history, we'd like to call your attention to a new electronic advanced reader copy, part of our ongoing eARC program, Germanica, the late Robert Conroy's alternate history about the Alpine Redoubt. Germanica tells the story of the last stronghold of Nazi propaganda master Josef Goebbels. Goebbels knows that if he can hold out a little longer, the Allies will back away from demanding unconditional surrender from Germany, and he and his zealots can prepare for the moment when their hateful Nazi ideology is ready once again to rise from its alpine grave and strike at the heart of humanity. But as determined as Goebbels is, there are Americans and a few stalwart Europeans just as determined to put a final stake in the Nazi heart. If you want to read Germanica early, before the hardcover release, the eARC is available now. Find it at Bain.com. We're very grateful to have a great group of guests from the Filk community on the podcast with us today. As I introduce each one... I'm going to invite them to give a little insight on how they got involved in Filk. First up is Perry Bruns, who got into Filk after stumbling into a bardic circle at Necronomicon 1989. He wrote his first Filk song shortly thereafter and now has over a hundred parodies and about 20 original songs, as he puts it, to his discredit. He tends to specialize in comedy with an emphasis on conversational lyrics. Perry, welcome to the podcast, and tell us a bit about your experience at Necronomicon. Well, thank you, Gray. Um, as a matter of fact, I've actually over the years become staff at Necro, which is also why I miss Ohio Valley Filk Festival every year. But I got into Filk there because of a lovely lady named Ann Morris. And uh, she actually provided me with a couple of lyric sheets and explained how, you know, the things worked and kind of gave me some background on it. And shortly thereafter, I did, as a lot of other people unfortunately do, and added a couple verses to the ever-expanding Argo saga. But then uh, shortly thereafter, wrote a parody of Columbia, the Gem of the Ocean, about the fact that the Enterprise is always the only ship of the quadrant. And from there, it kind of diverged into uh, a thing where I would do Disney and Billy Joel for a lot of uh, songs. I think I've just always gravitated towards show tunes because they start out conversational, so it's easy for me to kind of shift the theme a little bit. One of the favorite bits that I've done, uh, we were at Epcot one day, and my wife, who is much funnier than I am, turned to me suddenly and said, you know, the Pocahontas song Color of the Wind scans to the money you can spend. And I was off. (laughs) That's kind of how things happen. That sounds great. Appreciate you sharing that with us. Next, pleasure. Next we have Blind Lemming Chiffon, who calls himself a blues comedian and singer-songwriter, 
but is blind only in a figurative sense. The lemming, he says, is a, his token animal as a blues musician because the lemming, like the blues, is surrounded by folklore that is very different from fact. Lemmings do not actually commit suicide, and the blues are not the music of depression. And chiffon is the icing on the cake. So uh, welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour, Blind Lemming, and please tell us how you got involved in the Filk community. That is singer-song re-writer, as opposed to singer-song writer, which are common. Anyway, um, 1974, I took a class in science fiction at my local college, and I found out about Filk through academia. The professor was a fan, and he did a slideshow on the various aspects of fandom, I heard there was such a thing as Silk and immediately realized that I had written probably a hundred or so Silk songs without knowing what, what this thing was. So I was kind of a natural. And I got going to going to conventions back in the 70s and met some other Filkers. I think I met Juanita Colson at a Worldcon in 1979. As far as being published in, in the mid-1980s, I knew Kathy Marr, who was local to where I lived. And she happened to hear me singing a song back in the 80s. And somehow that song wound up being sung by Kathy Mara on an off-center filk tape. And I guess I've just been involved in it and going to the convention, oh, about 30, 35 years now. Wow, that's awesome. I look forward to hearing what you're going to be able to share with us today. Anything you want me to say. <laughs> in reason. <laughs> Got it. Well, next up are Sally and Barry Childs-Helton, winners of multiple Pegasus Awards for Excellence in Filking, who in 2003 were inducted into the Filk Hall of Fame. Sally is a percussionist, ethnomusicologist, and archivist. Barry is a lifelong reader of science fiction and has written songs and played guitar for almost as long. Barry found fandom while in grad school and attended his first con in Texas in 1978. Since 1984, Sally and Barry have played as a duo and with the Black Book Band and Wild Mercy. They have three albums out as a duo, plus one with the Black Book Band and three with Wild Mercy. They've won Best Performer Pegasus Awards as a duo and with both bands. And Barry won the Best Space Song Pegasus in 1993. Sally also has two of her tunes on the Dr. Demento show. So would the two of you tell us briefly how you got into Filk? Well, I'd like for Sally to go first, if you would, please. Well, Barry and I were dating in, in grad school in 1984, and we had already started playing some of Barry's tunes, and just like... BLC said Barry's tunes were already ready to go into the Filk room without anybody knowing it. We had no idea that Filk existed. We played music together as as part of, uh, of dating for us. We were gigging well before we got married. And on one date, Barry and I had gone to In Conjunction in Indianapolis, and we walked past a room full of people late at night making music and thought, oh, that's cool. We should go in there and see what they're up to. And because we hadn't brought instruments or anything, we just sat on the outskirts and 
listen for a while, and then we started asking people questions about what was going on, and that was sort of the beginning of the end for us, and I'll let Barry pick it up from there. <laughs> I kind of cheated. I got started through academia. I was uh, writing a dissertation in the folklore department at IU on folklore and technology, and had gotten taken off on onto the tangent of uh, science fiction fandom as essentially a technologically inspired folk culture. And uh, we had a student papers conference in 79, and I hosted one of the presenters who was an active fan and an active gamer and an active filker. Um, he had a, a mountain dulcimer that he used. So I had some sense of uh, what to expect in a larger convention, but the only one I'd seen had been a, a small local Star Trek convention in Lubbock, Texas. So I was curious about these things, uh, but I, I will confess that when Sally and I walked into that folk room and it judged, I was completely intimidated by all of these vast three-ring binders that were overflowing with songs I didn't know. And this vast folk tradition that had been going on since 1959 or earlier that I was completely adrift in. And I, I had been putting science fiction motifs in my songwriting since I was 19, but it was pretty much in a vacuum, um, the kind of reader's vacuum of a, um, an avid reader of the genre and an English major, so you can imagine what the product was like. But much to my delight, the people in the room um, listened and enjoyed, and before too long, they started singing along. They knew the words. I mean, this, is, this just completely spoils any singer-songwriter for audience. Um, you just get completely coddled by the fact that you have all these people paying attention to the words and um, anxious for you to continue to do this. So, uh, yeah, we got addicted. <laughs> it went on from there. Well, excellent. We're really uh, glad to have you here and wanted to congratulate you guys on being the guests of honor this year at Consonance, the uh, San Francisco Bay Area Filk Convention for our listeners. Such a delight. It was a total delight. Very nice. Well, we also have with us Lizzie Crow and her husband, Eric Coleman, who are also known as Cheshire Moon. They're part of a growing genre of music called myth punk, a word coined by Catherine Valente to describe her writing. Lizzie is a relatively new member of the Filk community, she says she was dragged into it by S.J. Tucker a few years ago. Eric has been part of the Filk community for quite a few years and was one of the founders of the hard rock Filk band Toy Boat. They won two Pegasus Awards in 2014, Best Performer and Best Filk Song for Snow White Red Road, and they will be the guest of honor at Consonance next year. Congratulations, you guys. And uh, what's the story behind S.J. Tucker dragging you into Filk, Lizzie? And then how did you get into it, Eric? Well, you see, what happened was, um, <laughs> Suge, as she, um, as she is known, she had had a concert in the Chicago area just a few days before DuckCon back in 2009. And I attended her concert because I had um, become a fan. I was becoming quickly a friend of hers. 
Um, she's very sweet. And she pulled me aside after the show and said, you're coming to DuckCon, right? To which I responded, I am now. <laughs> and so um, I arrived by train and cab on Saturday morning, and I had no idea what I was in for because it had been a very long time since I'd been to anything like it. And so I walked in, I was surrounded by people in costume and you know, authors and writers and people. I was like, I'm home. Fantastic. And then I was absconded with by the Silkers. I had two friends that I already knew within the silk community, um, Evan and Elise Middleton, and they started taking me around, which is actually where I met Eric. And so I blame my marriage on S.J. Tucker. But anyway, <laughs> so I got around into the silk room where I saw for the first time Vixie and Tony, followed by Sean and McGuire, and Sutra's up on stage with both of them, at which point I was a complete goner. The folk circle that night was filled with amazing people, some of which were actually on the call today. Tom Smith is one of them. Um, Eric was there. And it was a life-changing experience. And I've never looked back. So, Eric, what's your story? So, so I, I, um, I stumbled into fandom by accident, and that's a whole longer, different story than we can go into here now. But I, I've been in fandom for probably five or ten years I ran a game room at a convention. I ran a radio station at a convention for a while. Ran a little one-watt one watt radio station. It did that for about 10 years. But I, I'd heard about Silk, and I kind of knew about it. And I, I, I've been writing very, very serious songs, very serious singer-songwriter sort of songs. And I started to write a couple funny songs. And I wandered into a Silk room one night, and I sat there for about an hour and a half just kind of with, with, you know, with my guitar in my lap, just kind of looking at people going, I like this. No one's going to like my song. It, it doesn't fit here. It doesn't, it's just absolute, you know, songwriter paranoia. And I finally got up the nerve to do one of my funny songs, played it, and realized, oh, I'm a geek. I write songs. Geeks get my jokes. And, <laughs> and, and sat there for about another hour and a half, and then I left. And um, Jan DeMassey, who's a big goo person in Silk, ran Silk at a convention for a very long time, uh, was, was convinced that I would walk in, play a song, and then leave. And I, it was years later when I said to her, no, no, I would sit there for like an hour or two getting up the nerve. Um, I was very shy about it. But I started writing more funny songs and started playing at conventions, became part of the dementia music scene. I'm, I'm an auxiliary member of the Funk, although I've, I've been kind of inactive for a while because I've had other things going on. 2007, 2008... I had this idea for forming a rock band that was going to take silk songs and turn them into big, loud rock songs, and foolishly mentioned that to Daniel Gunderson, a.k.a. Gundo, and he and I formed Toy Boat, who still exists now. I'm not a member of the band anymore. I was, I was, I was the drummer, but I hurt my hands, and I can't play drums anymore. But Toy Boat still exists and still plays and still melts brains. I played solo a lot, and then Lizzie and I... Um, started dating, started writing songs, actually pretty much the same weekend, and went, this is this is cool, and keep writing songs. Uh, we've got two albums out, two EPs, and we play a lot of conventions, we play coffee houses, we do, it's all part of the same thing. So, so I've been in the film community for about 15 years now. All right, good, good, good. Our last guest for this podcast is Tom Smith, 
who will be the music guest of honor this August at Sasquan, the 73rd World Science Fiction Convention. Tom is known as the world's fastest filker and was inducted into the Filk Hall of Fame in 2005 and has won 14 Pegasus Awards. So, Tom, how did you find and join the Filk community? I was trying to get laid. <laughs> did it work? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's still working. <laughs> I, seriously, was uh, actually part of a Rocky Horror group uh, back in 1980, cough, uh, out here in Ann Arbor, there were, there were some people who came down from East Lansing because East Lansing had two Rocky Horror groups, and uh, one of them had already commandeered the theater, so the other came down to Ann Arbor, which, you know, the theater hadn't been commandeered by another group. And the first night that I showed up there, it had been a long time. I'd been living out of town, actually, for a couple of years. Uh, yeah, long, too long to get into. But uh, I went to Rocky Horror that night, and... There's this group up there, a bunch of people in costume. Hey, how cool is that? And it turned out that they needed a Rocky. And so I said, okay, stripped down in my DVDs and did Rocky. Now, back then, I was actually 200 pounds of solid muscle. I'd been biking like 10 miles a day for the previous 10 years, so I was you know, pretty good shape. And um, they came out every two weeks, and they made me a gold lame costume. It was awesome. And... Um, about the same time, I was hanging out with some other uh, friends and fans uh, out here in Ypsilanti, which is the sister city to Ann Arbor right next door, and they had uh, some of their friends, people like Frank Hayes and Cliff Flint and, uh, and other folks like that who were, who were deep in the film community, and... Then it turned out that Robin and a few other people were also into Filk and uh, actually part of the Tolkien Society at MSU. And I said, I want to do this. My mom was a dance. Uh, my mom was a singer. My dad was a dancer. And they tried to give me uh, piano lessons, organ lessons, accordion lessons, tap dancing lessons, drum lessons. Nothing took. I got myself a consignment $25 guitar and a couple of Mel Bay books, and I taught myself how to play guitar. And that finally took, kind of. And so I started doing funny songs on the theory that if I was making people laugh, then they would be out of breath and couldn't chase me to kill me for my uh, in- incompetence. So, <laughs> and and that gave me that gave me the several years that I needed to get to be good. Uh, <laughs> and and that's pretty much it. That that, that that pretty much is actually the real story behind uh, behind all of that. I was I was. I, I was cruising for chicks, and I was I, I wanted to be a musician, and I'd always dreamed of being a musician, and I finally ended up just, just falling into the right circumstances where it seemed to be the thing to do. And that was 30 years ago, and here we are. Excellent. Wow. All right, well, I appreciate that, y'all. I don't know how many of you and how many of our listeners got a chance to go back and hear our two-part Filk Roundtable discussion that we had in April and May here on the Bain Free Radio Hour, we talked about the basics on that show. But one of the things that we touched on but didn't explore in depth was sort of the the roots of Filk, if you will, and the role of, of fanzines and the prevalence of parody songs in the early days. Uh, now, I know that none of you were around in the earliest days of Filk, but you know, what's your understanding of how the community formed and how it has stayed cohesive 
over the years. Okay, blind this lemon here. Wait, <laughs> Sally, go for it. Um, no, I can I can tell you what Juanita Colson said, and she was there at the beginning. And I think all of us, she, she is the den mother of Midwest Bilking. And she is in her 80s now, and so she was there pretty close to the beginning. And what Juanita says is that Filk grew out of the American Folk Song Revival, and that people would gather who were fans of folk singing, and I'm talking about if I had a hammer and things like that, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and they would bring their guitars to science fiction conventions, and they would gather in any space they could find, including boiler rooms and hallways and stairwells and other equally uninviting places, and they would sing all the folk songs they knew to each other, and she said when they sang everything they knew, they'd start all over again. And from there, people started realizing that they could set their own words to science fiction, well, their own words with science fiction themes to known folk songs. And I'm sure some of them were funny in the sense of parody, and other ones were, shall we say, tunes were being borrowed, new words were being added, which is a very folkloric process. So that's that's my understanding. That's That's what... Juanita said, and um, I believe it. BLC. Also, a really, it's a, a really natural outgrowth of a tendency that goes back centuries. If you think about the broadside ballads in the British tradition in the 18th and 19th centuries, these were long sheets of um, printed song lyrics that were uh, available for sale in the streets, and they would always note to the tune of, and it would be a traditional song that everyone had picked up in oral tradition. So you get a number of variants that crop up that way, both British variants and American variants. And when it enters the stream of popular music, through uh, partly through minstrel shows and sheet music in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and partly through the whole development of the recording industry and the music industry, which is always hungry for newness, and that can either be novelty in the sense of something people haven't heard before or novelty in the sense of something that is entertaining and funny. And the development of what we think of as Dr. Demento's bailiwick, um, really, I remember hearing on the top 40 in the 50s and the 60s, you'd get the occasional um, novelty record that uh, made me prick up my ears, especially things like... Uh, the uh, Astronaut Part 1 and 2 by Jose Jimenez, which figures in the right stuff later, later on down the road. But there was this tapestry of popular music that uh, had the potential to fascinate people. I think it's only after people started playing guitars widely and, you know, copying tunes off the radio that they really were prepared to do parody of popular music in a systematic way. Okay. Well, you know, in between all of that stuff, in the 20s and 30s, uh, fandom grew out of letter columns in the Pope magazine. They, not only did they have letter columns, they published people's names and addresses, and these people got to writing to each other and communicating by fanzines and mimeographing and duplicating. And from the very beginning... They have put songs in their fanzines. 
it, it goes back way further than the 1950s. Uh, there are examples of songs that look very much like folk songs going back to the 1920s and 30s. That would make sense, because that's really the, the roots of fandom right there, are the letter columns of the early mm -hmm. pulp magazines. But the difference, though, is Sally again. But the difference, though, is something um, that we may end up talking about later. In, in that early zines had the print form, but what Juanita Colson was talking about was the face-to-face -face interaction that, for me, really makes the film room happen. So mm -hmm. it was that that idea of face-to-face -face interaction and sharing songs together that that weren't necessarily published. Another thing is Dave Van Rock in his autobiography mentions that like in the early 60s and even in the late 50s, all of those ideal, all of those idols of the folk movement, all, all the people that we treasure now, people like Dave and Tom Paxton, Bob Dylan even, everybody, when they weren't singing folk songs, they were all reading science fiction. Most of them were fans. You mentioned some of the roots came from the American folk revival, and I'm curious, uh, given that it began sort of with, with folk music and the sharing of folk music, has the folk community always welcomed a wide variety of musical styles, or has the musical variety grown over time? Eric here. It depends on where you are. Um, some communities are much more open to other things, and, and this is just me for the last, you know, 15 years. Um, some, there are some, some communities that, you know, don't like rock music, they don't want any part of it, they don't like the nerdcore, the rap stuff, and there's some who are just like anybody who wants to sit down, and the majority of the Filk community that I've seen anyway has been very welcoming to anything that you want to do. I think so, anyway. I was, I was, I was going to say, that, that, Eric, uh, this is Derry. I've seen uh, styles of performance that uh, range from karaoke to uh, rap to rock to show tunes to uh, essentially big band jazz. There are some players who have organized bands that are entirely composed of people who are very conversant with the folk tradition and with the more academic traditions of academic uh, classical and jazz. So these elements keep coming in. But then you'll find people who will uh, stand up and sing something a cappella, sometimes an original song that um, has the flavor of a folk song to it, but is their own creation. And it seems to me that the importance of the folk room as a social process is to give people the opportunities to share things that they've made and to share themselves as performers with each other. It's kind of the ancient thing of entertaining each other all night <laughs> and lacking a and bonfire to do that. We find, yeah, we do that. Go ahead. Uh, it's true. It can definitely go all night. Um, this is Lizzie. I do want to add one thing. The Suttons of Indianapolis actually coined a phrase that I really, really love. Uh, Brenda and Bill Sutton, you know, silk is what happens in a silk circle. You know, it, it is the music that you bring forth to it. And so it, it kind of doesn't have any boundaries as to what can or can't be. It simply is. Yeah. 
Uh, Tom here. I would like to point out that there's also been the evolution of uh, society itself and its music that we bring along with it. First off, as far as uh, uh, Silk goes, okay, because there is so much parody and there is so much comedy, uh, you can take it all the way back very easily to Tom Lehrer, who did a lot of things in a lot of different styles. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, every damn thing. He did you know, tango, he did, uh, he did ragtime, he did show tunes. Uh, the only thing he didn't really do was rock and roll, and he did a couple things that were close to that. Um, then there was the actual introduction of rock and roll and a bunch of divergent music that came up in the late 50s, early 60s, and through the 70s. And many of the musicians that started out in Filk were children of the 30s and 40s, where there were more folk songs, and now they're children of the 50s and 60s and 70s, where that turn to be uh, more Beatles and uh, you know more Eagles and whatever else you might uh, be getting there. And now we're getting other parodies uh, of stuff done in the last 15 years that some of the older people have no idea what it is because they don't listen to the radio anymore, not for that. But, 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 we're, but we're getting those parodies. Uh, and the musical styles are also changing. When I, when I first got into folk, uh, you know, there was basically a bunch of folk songs. And actually, I like to think of, of, of myself, and certainly I also credit uh, heavily Barry and Sally on this, for bringing in other styles. It's like all of a sudden there were some people who were playing calypso and, and, and other stuff like that, and, uh, and, and rock and roll, and, and we suddenly started expanding in directions I think nobody had ever imagined, and we're still doing that. Tom, as I remember, you, you picked up on that really early. One of the, uh, your early things completely slayed me was how Frank Herbert killed Crystal Gale, or Crystal Gale, whichever one of those that was. I, 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 do that, I do that all the time. Um, that is still uh, some may, of the worst funding I've ever heard. Great. May, uh, may, may I tell the tale, please, Gray? Oh, please do. Please do. Yes, please do, and then after that, we'll introduce a, a song. Cool. Uh, this was... Um, Markon 1986, and it was like the first time. It wasn't the fir- it was the first time I was performing at Markon. I'd been to the previous one, but uh, uh, this time there was a sign up for a bunch of one shots. And through stupid circumstances on my part, I ended up going last. And going next to last uh, were Cliff Flint with Mary Ellen Wessels and Bill Roper, and they were doing one of Cliff's songs, "Dream All Day." Which is a gorgeous song, and everybody knew it, and it was you know, had, you know multiple layers of harmony just ringing throughout the room. It was absolutely gorgeous. And then hither come I, <laughs> and they announce the title of my song, and I start singing. The spice melange, it's so cinnamon sweet. I put it on most everything I eat. It's addictive too. And at this point, about half the audience went, "Oh no!" And then I went, "And don't it make my brown eyes blue?" And then they all went, "Ah!" And I was hooked. <laughs> we were there. We were. I remember. Yeah, you guys were there. Well, this sounds like a good spot to insert. A song, and uh, the first song we'd like to play on this podcast is "Ultraplanetary," which is uh, one of Sally and Barry's songs. And since we're talking about different musical styles, you guys introduced it as uh, one of the very few filk songs in the jazz genre. Uh, can you tell us a little about it to introduce it? Sure. Um, it's part of a. Uh song cycle involving a thousand-year interstellar migration, and I wanted to use um, genres to convey certain stages of cultural development. 
So folk songs, I, I use some folk songs to convey kind of the long-term staying power of old traditional motifs. And more recent genres like progressive rock and jazz to suggest that the future will be different and radical and challenging. So this one is written in some odd time signatures that I mostly copped from Dave Brubeck and Pentangle. And um, the language is deliberately oblique, kind of the way yes lyrics are, kind of the way um, a number of the songwriters I most admire, such as Leonard Cohen, um, sometimes are, where you're trying to get at an idea almost with your peripheral vision instead of looking right at it um, and trying to get let the, the music of the language become part of the musical arrangement. And that's pretty much what my take on it anyway. All right, well, let's listen to it. Expeditionary, worlds are merciless and kind. Kill your heart, but anchor your mind. Heavy atmosphere rolls below you, leave it far behind. Are you frightened to die? Living swiftly in the sky. Then incendiary, bright as waking, hot as wrath Burn through dark, as fast as your mouth White intensity, scattered densely, on your outward path Drawing in at the core, always blinding, always more Visionary, superluminary, spectrum starlight and bright spin, blaze begins, bedazzles begin. Creativity's cryptic healing soothes your failing skin. Time and space were a ruse, watch them vanish as they Nomad emissary, coming home like a spring rain Free phantasmal substantive same Brightly planet-bound, made mortal, no mere husk of dust There's this vastness within All your troubles, all you've missed Thanks for letting us listen to that. That was Ultraplanetary by Wild Mercy, the band of Sally and Barry Childs Helton. And this actually seems like a good spot to break our discussion into multiple pieces. 
So tune in again on a future episode to hear more of our talk about Filk and the Filk community. But for now... Here is part two of the complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky, as read by Tristan Morris. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com. And if you're not already an Audible subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free when you try Audible free for 30 days. Or you can choose from more than 100,000 other titles. But of course, we think you should pick Under a Graveyard Sky. And then, check out its sequels. Under a Graveyard Sky is the first volume of the Black Tide Rising series by John Ringo. When an airborne zombie plague is released, bringing civilization to a grinding halt, the Smith family, Stephen, Stacy, Sophia, and Faith, take to the high seas to avoid the chaos. But even the wide-open spaces of the Atlantic Ocean don't provide a safe haven from the anarchy of infected humanity. It is up to the Smiths and a small band of Marines to somehow create a refuge in a world of darkness and terror. With every continent a holocaust and every ship an abattoir, they must fight to survive under a graveyard sky. Here is Tristan Morris with part two of the complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Chapter Two <clears throat> Steve said, dialing the number. Aggravated and harried, that's easy enough. Mr. Resto, this is Jason Ranseld again. Can I call you Felix? Absolutely call me Jason. Felix, there's a problem. Here's our deal. We're trying to close an investor, and he's into sailing. The last time I did this, it was some schlub that just won a big settlement, and he wanted to go out on a cigarette boat. Got him into a fountain lightning, and it just about scared the shit out of him. Yeah, you know the type. Thing is, the freaking meeting got moved up to Sunday, and we don't have a boat available on the East Coast. Yeah. So I convinced the partners to just go for the whole thing. Yeah, purchase order is in place. We'll sell it later, maybe to the client. Happens that way sometimes. But we've got to close this tomorrow so I can make sure everything's in place for Sunday. I know it's a snap kick. We are going to have to move up the meeting to either tonight or tomorrow morning. Late tonight, I'm in Richmond. Sorry about that. You want the commission or not? Yes. Hello? You rent luxury cars? Found the house. Jason Ransold's identification, Stacy said, handing over the driver's license, American Express card, and Australian passport. Steve had set up the identity years before and carefully maintained it. Jason Ransold's photo of his kids and Mrs. Ransold. Cute kids. Wish they were ours. The rain had at least passed, but the sky was still gray, and the wind outside the Nissan looked to be biting. It would be a great day to go sailing. Not. Hey, Faith said sleepily. I bet they're real snowflakes. The sun was barely up, and the drive had been long. The girls had been able to rack out in the back, but Steve and Stacy had had to drive separate cars. Then there had been the recon of the marina, 
They are, Steve said. My daughter, Faith Rinsold, just had her 13th birthday for 60 kids at Disney World in Orlando. And their parents. We had to pay for the whole damn thing. Sophia Rensseld's sweet 16 is coming up, and God knows what she's gonna want, the spoiled little brat. I want a cake that looks like a full-size dragon and has real flames, Sophia said. And Disney is so kitsch. I want mine at, um... Keep working on it, Sophia Rensseld, Steve said. Why are we having to change our names, Faith said. We're not meeting this guy, right? No, Steve said but I need to remember my real name. Okay, Mr. Rensseld, Stacy said. Conspiracy to commit fraud and grand larceny. Great. Nothing really turning up on the radio, Steve said. We need to get internet access. We need more supplies, Stacy pointed out. We've got at most 30 days. Not food, other consumables. And you can't make toilet paper, Faith pointed out. Make a stop, Steve said getting out of the Nissan. Level one protocols. Best we can do without freaking people out. I'll meet you at the rendezvous. Felix, Steve said, stepping out of the rental Mercedes. Glad you could meet me so early. You know the drill, Resto said, sipping his coffee. We also serve who sell boats, he added with a grin. Tell me about it, Steve said, shaking his head. Speaking of which, boat? Follow me. Resto said, walking over to his BMW. Steve kept his eyes open and carefully, if covertly, examined the marina. There was a guard shack, but a drive-by the previous night had shown it to be unoccupied at night, as well as day. They'd staked out the marina for two hours and had seen no sign of any roving guard, although a security car had passed at 4.23 a.m. Probably the marina had once featured guard on duty 24 hours but had cut back with the current economy to an occasional drive-by. The gate had a keypad lock, which Resto opened, which gave at least one code to the lock, given the punch tracker that Stacy had installed. If the con didn't work, they could always slip in and slip out with the boat, assuming the owners hadn't removed something critical from the ship's systems. Better to just buy it with fake money. Money was basically fake anyway, at least the way his source did things. Tom, Richard Bateman said. You're the man at this meeting. Dr. Richard Bateman, PhD, econ, was CEO of Bank of the Americas. Tall and nearly as broad as his security chief at six foot four, he had the Duragur height for a Fortune 500 CEO, and graying temples so perfect, everyone wanted to know what hairdresser he used. Yes, sir, Thomas Train Smith said standing up and going to the end of the board table. Tom's full nickname was Thomas the Train Engine. This was given to him back in officer's basic course and had stayed as his handle ever since. The joke around the office was, Clark Kent turns out to be Australian. In his banker suit and birth control glasses, he did rather look like a sandy blonde Clark Kent. And the typing pool generally agreed that when the suit came off, he looked exactly like a blonde Superman. When the young ladies he met in clubs asked him what he did, he generally just said investment banking, because that meant he had money, and he'd get laid. Well, the dancers and actresses. The goth and emo chicks at the alternative club seemed to prefer his other answer. 
I'm the bad guy that gets killed second to last in the movie. You know when the villain turns to his boss henchman and says, take care of it. I'm that guy. With some who were way out there, this occasionally backfired. The one time he got a call to come help him move a body, he'd agreed to meet her, asked where, then politely called the police. Fortunately, it turned out to be an OD, and the NYPD had limited their questions. In fact, he had yet to be told to take care of it in any extreme manner. When he'd taken the job, he'd wondered if dirty work was in the offing, and even, tactfully, checked during the very long vetting process. The response had been, for bankers, humorous at best. Bankers didn't have to have their employees kill, defame, or otherwise destroy enemies. There were lots of people that just did it for them, because, well, people want their money. When a new dam was being negotiated in some developing country, it wasn't banks who paid laborers to go beat up protesters. That was the local government who was going to make money off of the dam. To the extent that investment banks did anything along those lines, it was to quietly protest. No, stop. No, seriously, it looks bad. And then lend them money anyway. Tom was still unsure if he was disappointed or relieved. Most of his job came down to making sure that servers had distant offline backups and checking to see what shining path was up to lately. Saturday morning was not a normal time for all the senior executives of the Bank of Americas to meet. And since they were only one of many such groups meeting all over the world on this particular Saturday, the cat was going to be out of the bag by noon, latest. This is the issue, Tom said, bringing up a photo of the pathogen in question. The pathogen is currently called H7D3. There is no common name associated. It is definitely man-made and has been widely spread. Spread method is currently unknown. Currently, there are no manifestos or declarations related to it. FBI is trying to trace the source, but they're barely getting started. And this isn't the movies. They don't find the culprits overnight, if ever. For details on the pathogen and immunological response, I'm going to turn this over to Dr. David Curry. Dr. Curry is a virologist who has consulted with us on emergency response as well as business risk management in biological investments. Dr. Curry? I always start with an excuse my accent. Dave Curry was a bit under six feet tall with dark brown hair and bright brown eyes. I was born in lower Alabama and ain't quite got rid of my draw. The pathogen is, as Mr. Smith noted, definitely man-made, antiviral-resistant and very sophisticated. For one thing, it is both an airborne pathogen and a blood pathogen. First one of those in, well, ever. Otherwise, I won't bore you gentlemen with the technical details. They're in my lecture notes. Progress appears to be as follows. Normal flu, non-symptomatic infective period of about five to seven days. To refresh you from swine flu, influenza, unlike some other stuff, like SARS, is infectious for a period of time, generally around seven days, before you get your first sniffle or fever, which, by the way, is a bugger and a half. Individuals are, again, non-symptomatic, but infecting everyone and everything they come into contact with. And it means that the origin, assuming some sort of device, is going to be hard to pin down. Then, flu-like symptoms. 
No major differences between this and any other sort of flu. Somewhat worse than seasonal, but not as bad as, say, swine flu or SARS. Not a patch on avian flu, but it's extremely infective. Upper respiratory, which is the easy stuff to catch. Lots of coughing, hacking, spitting, and occasional pneumonia for those who are susceptible. Current model is about 5% mortality in the flu stage. Most in the old and young. Not much worse, as I said, than seasonal. Usually lasts 24 to 48 hours, then there's a dead period. Most symptoms except low-grade fever disappear. This is the first point that it becomes non-flu-like. After a period they're trying to pin down, looks like two to five days, neurological symptoms start. Probably, and it's only probably, that is the point where the subjects become blood pathogen infectious and may, again, may, no longer be airborne infectious. Best to assume all subjects are both vectors until we've got a better handle on this. Initial presentation of neurological symptoms are, in no particular order, palsy, disorientation, dizziness, blurred vision, and, notably, formication. Note, I said formication. This refers to a form of paresthesia, or itching tingling, which feels like ants crawling on or biting the skin. Series of presentation is somewhat random, but at a certain point, the patient tends to strip to get the spiders or ants off. Strip? Richard said. Yes, Tom said. In all the cases that have come to the attention of the police, the subject has been naked. That seems... Dr. Bradford J. DePine was not as tall as his boss, by nearly a foot, but he weighed at least twice as much. He and Tom were not by any stretch of the imagination best buddies. DePine had been born with a silver spoon and had apparently used it as hard as he possibly could his whole life. Tom really wasn't as bothered by the gross obesity as by the fact that, while unquestionably brilliant, DePine had the common sense of a duckling. That seems sort of... The term you're looking for is obscene, Richard said. Any idea why? Just for the embarrassment factor? Pornographic? If it's intentional, it's smart, Dr. Curry said. But can I cover that later? Continue, Bateman said. After the formication period, things vary. There are so far 24 identified patients in the U.S., None of those have gone through the full series while under observation. Most have presented symptoms outside quarantine. In other words, they were picked up by the cops as crazy naked people before they were identified as being H7 infected. There have been nine of those in the U.S., so far, who were in advanced neurological stage. One has died while under care, and one is critical. That's not a statistical study, but it looks as if this is also a real killer neurologically. 20% death rate, Bateman asked. Right at that is what it looks like, Curry said, shrugging. Data is still firming up. However, in the meantime, they're a handful. Extreme homicidal psychosis with reduced mental capacity is the current psychobabble diagnosis. Think lobotomized and violent as hell. Very bitey. No coherent sentient response. No language, per se. Just basically animal responses. 
and aggressive animal at that. L.A. General is starting to fill up their padded rooms, one customer per, or they try to kill each other. Currently, there's a statistical lean to male. Of the 24, 16 are male. All three of the terminal were male. Two of the three critical are male, but that could be from any number of factors, including where the infection started and how it spread. SARS looked male-leaning for a while due to how it was spreading. Again, we'll know more in a week. They're still examining suspect patients and known subjects who are identified as infected or probably infected. There's a slightly less strong lean to male among those. Stats and other indicators, as well as potential treatments, will start firming up over the next few days. Again, first identification as an outbreak was only yesterday. These are early days. What do we do about it? Bateman asked. We being the bank, as well as in general. If it had been a normal and natural outbreak, I think we could get ahead of this thing, Curry said, shrugging. As it is, it's spread all over. It has delayed onset of symptoms, two delays, and it's infective as hell. Airborne and blood pathogen with a violent vector on the latter, that's infective as hell. There are probably people going into neurological state all over the place that are being viewed as the usual sort of thing. The usual sort of thing, Depine asked. Naked people are normal? Police have to deal with naked subjects more than most people realize, Tom said. Any large department will deal with someone nude and incoherent at least once a week. Often extremely violent. In New York, as often as once a day. It really was only when L.A. was dealing with six in one day that anyone started looking for a central source. And even then, they were looking at drugs. Surprisingly, it didn't make the blogs at all. At least not noticeably. It will soon. We've been tracking this new flu already, mind you. Curry said. It took about a day for UCLA Med to put two and two together. The sort of people who are naked and crazy normally have other illnesses, and this sudden outbreak seasonal flu was considered to be symptom rather than cause. Then CDC noted that this was not a seasonal flu, so the alert started going up, given the locus and spread was not following standard models. Then one of the police who had dealt with patient zero and been bitten started to manifest neurological symptoms. At that point, they realized they were dealing with a neurological pathogen. To answer the original question, the only real chance we have is general public and government response. Strong influenza protocols, along with some changes in rules of engagement by law enforcement, will slow this, maybe even stop it. It's less about the bug right now than it is about general immunology protocols. Your offices already have hand sanitizers. Ensure they get used. And if somebody won't, well, send them home or fire them. Ditto anyone showing any flu-like symptoms. Don't shake hands. Don't shake hands. Ever. For any reason. Wash your hands thoroughly several times a day. Right now, usual drill is all we've got. Ask me again in a week if there's a change. As to the nastier symptoms, this is New York. Telling the difference between a crazy homeless guy and one of the infected is going to be a bit dicey at first. But if somebody is clean cut, basically clean and running around screaming, biting, and naked, they're probably in advanced neurological stage. Be warned, 
it definitely has a blood pathogen component. And the onset is direct to neurological and fast. The police officer who was bitten started beginning symptoms of neurological stage in six hours. So for our security personnel, Mr. Smith, at the first sign of incoherence on the part of an employee or visitor, especially if they start getting naked, you need to taser first, then ask questions from hazmat. Do not allow yourself to get bitten. Roger, Tom said, making a note. Mr. Bateman? Confirmed, Bateman said. We'll promulgate that. If I may, sir, Tom said. Best to promulgate that anyone acting incoherent for the purpose of humor will be fired if found to be non-infected. There are people that are going to push this. Also agreed, Bateman said. This is nothing to joke about. And sorry, gentlemen, that has to go for any rank, Dr. Curry said, looking at the assembled executives. If one of you has any habit of bipolar reactions or schizophrenia, if you go off your meds, just figure you're going to get tasered. And if it's just a freakout, say thank you, Mr. Security Guard, for tasering me when they determine you're not infected. On that, right now, there is no way to tell short of a blood test. They're rolling out nasal antibody tests sometime this week, but that's for the flu. We're not sure if they work for the neurological, since we've never seen a dual-expression rhinovirus. Also, everybody and their brother is looking for a vaccine. Any hint on that? I'll pass it through to Mr. Smith. Questions? No antivirals that it's not resistant to? Bateman asked. The CEO was clearly unhappy that there were essentially no useful measures to take. There are ways to get antivirals which aren't available in the U.S. None, Dr. Curry said, grinning mirthlessly. Whoever did this armored it up. There aren't even any that are near approval in Europe, which tells me there is a vaccine. You're not going to create something that you're not going to survive. The combination of intelligent enough to create a world killer flu, crazy enough to do it, and suicidal is too small a pool. Similar personality types, mind you, but not overlapping. Whoever did this intends to survive it, which means there's a vaccine, not a cure, mind you. So you'd better hope there's a vaccine before you or your family catch it. Next. Cover the making it so they strip is smart, Tom said. I'm going to have to say a word that everybody is avoiding, Curry said with a snort. Starts with a Z. Anybody want to say it before me, Mr. Bateman? Zombie, Bateman said. As long as it doesn't leave the confines of this room. One thing that always bugged me about biological zombies, Curry said, musingly, at least the ones that were something like realistic, say I am legend. They've got a crap. Every species eliminates waste. If you can't figure out how to use a door handle, how are you going to take off your pants to take a crap? And modern clothing is going to plug it up. Eventually, the subject dies of impaction and necrosis. So you really think that was built in? Depine asked. The words that are on every message about this are lethal and sophisticated, Curry said. It's why people are saying it has to be a nation state. But I don't buy it. If it had been a nation state, there would have been an unusual round of vaccination somewhere. Trust me. WHO looks for those as much as it looks for plagues. There haven't been. 
Not even, say, the Iranian Supreme Council. And what you can do with bugs these days with stuff off of eBay is insane. At least if you know what you're doing. And not even that. A reporter built Spanish flu in his damned kitchen. Then there's people all over hoping to be the next biological Wozniak playing around in their houses with... stuff. Usually not pathogens. But there's an entire industry of tinkers with biology. Okay, I'm one of them, but I know what I'm doing. This isn't inventing a new computer or the Model T. This is the basic building blocks of life, and you don't go playing with them like they're Legos. Or you eventually get something like, well, this. He concluded with a sigh. Ten to one, what we're going to find is that this is some kid, under 30, probably with a bachelor's degree, didn't complete his master's, and angry at the world. I could figure out how to do this pathogen. The people at, well, my level admit we've all figured out how to do a zombie virus, given current tech. But nobody has been stupid enough to actually do it until now. How? Depine said. I mean, in general, that sounds like science fiction. Tell that to your smartphone, Curry grumped. In case you hadn't noticed, we live in a science fiction world. Okay. One, rabies doesn't just make the brain swell. That's a side effect of what it's doing to the brain. That foam doesn't come from nowhere. Rabies works by affecting production of certain neurotransmitters. Two, there are other, lesser-known pathogens which have a targeted effect on other portions of the brain. Three, there's a lot about the brain we don't understand, but we do know how to mess it up. We know the basic centers and neurotransmitters for about everything simple. Love, anger, hunger, memory, pattern recognition. Four, open the door. From AIDS research, we know how to stick genes in eukaryotic cells and even target the type of cells. We know how to get cells to sequence certain proteins, also known as neurotransmitters. Put all that together with the pathogens we already know, like... Toxoplasmosis, modifying them to mess up the brain is easy. You can even make them only target certain individuals or groups genetically. Well, I could, but I didn't do it. I've got an alibi. How long have people like yourself, Bateman asked, frowning. People who are actual researchers, Curry said with another of those mirthless grins, or who work as consultants to afford all the conferences and papers. And who understands them? About two years ago, it was generally recognized that you could do a zombie virus, which is one of those only adults in the room, and we've had too much scotch discussions. Not for open conference. We'd estimated the general monkey in the basement would be able to do it in about five. So, they're three years ahead of our most optimistic schedule which is why those same sort of people on closed boards and who know about this are arguing for it being a major effort, something big, expensive, and noticeable. This kind of breakthrough generally is at the beginning, maybe an experiment at one of the universities or research centers that was in development and got swiped. One of the reasons bandied around in those drunken discussions to come up with one is that you were guaranteed to make headlines, and headlines mean funding. I'm one of the minority, arguing for mad scientists, or mad, angry, former grad student. Bright, mind you, 
Brilliant, even. Skipped right past three or four steps. That takes a real mad scientist genius. Quite mad, Bateman said. Doctor, what are your plans? I'm thinking island in the Caribbean, Dr. Curry said. But Mr. Smith has made me a very generous offer of semi-permanent consultant until this is over, one way or the other. I've been around enough research and on WHO teams to have stared this sort of death, in general, in the eye before. Not looking forward to losing my mind, mind you. It's my only real asset. If you're asking if I'll hang in there with one of the richest and best-prepared banks in the world, we'll talk. Depends on the fringe benefits. Such as? Bateman asked. I understand you have a retreat point, Curry said, shrugging. I don't really. Assuming we get to that point, I and one other are guaranteed a slot on the planes, or whatever. Do we have a retreat point? Depeen asked. And why aren't we going there now? Because we're not anywhere near that point, Brad, Bateman said with a sigh. It's not about a downtick in the stock market. We evacuate only when that point has been reached. And when is that point? Depeen asked. I'll let Mr. Smith cover that. Bateman said. Tom? There is a specific condition under which the Federal Reserve temporarily terminates operations, Tom said, for the duration of a global emergency. But upon either suspension of trade for the duration of the emergency, or upon vote of the board to suspend business activities for same, we then, and only then, activate the executive and special personnel evacuation exercise, which is generally called ESP, meaning when is ultimately up to Mr. Bateman, and or the board, and or the Fed, which means I'll be reading my crystal ball. If, in my opinion, the security situation, including biological security situation, has degraded past operability, I will request Mr. Bateman to so inform the board. But that is only if the Fed doesn't act first. So, you may know before I do, Dr. Depeen. As to Dr. Curry's request, I'd suggest that that be discussed in a separate meeting, as well as any hostile environment business plans. Agreed, Bateman said. Dr. Curry, your contract is at least extended for the duration of the emergency. Usual bonuses. And we'll be with you by Monday on the inclusion in the evacuation plan. I can wait that long, Curry said. I need to get back into the information stream. We all do, Bateman said blowing out a heavy breath. And I need to get a statement prepared for investors. That was part two of the complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo, read by Tristan Morris. That's it for this installment of the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Thanks to Perry Bruns, Blind Lemming Chiffon, Sally and Barry Childs Helton, Lizzie Crow and Eric Coleman, and Tom Smith. I'm Gray Reinhardt, contributing editor for Bain Books, and it's been my pleasure to be your host for this episode of the podcast. Please join us next time for the Bain Free Radio Hour, where the heart of science fiction and fantasy beats strong.